Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. 
In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Attention, attention. Hello, everybody, um, and welcome to the first of our We Have Ways of Making You Chalk um, (laughs) specials, Um, a title that it took James and I 18 entire um, British months to come up with. And I never came up with it, actually, to be fair. You did. (laughs) And you didn't come up with it. It's your history festival, and you didn't come. You had to rely on some two-bit stand-up to think of it for you. (laughs) Anyway... um, Aside from that, we are we're, so. What we're doing um, uh, this week is to mark the 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 well, the sort of the festival as it should have been, festival as it could have been, and as it can be now in this uh, COVID version, um, <laughs> lo- our lockdown chalk history, uh, chalk valley history festival. Um, and so, what we're going to do is every day we're going to talk to someone, and the Second World War may well come up, as our regular listeners know. But we're also we're we're going to afford ourselves some tangents here because of the people we've managed to muster from James's list of historians who were stood down, um, uh, historians at home twiddling their thumbs, and we are delighted to kick this series off with a with a well a, a legend of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, of of history broadcasting and of history itself uh, michael wood thanks so much for joining us it's michael. a great pleasure i'm missing chalk valley already oh you and me the same mike <laughs> uh, and i just want to i listen my i'm going to make you I, I don't want to kind of make you blush or anything but but you know you are one of the reasons i i i am a historian because um, in my formative years, I was, you know, as a teenager, sort of getting excited and interested in history. There you were gadding about um, Troy and Dark Ages Britain. Mm. And uh, and I was absolutely hooked by those TV series. I thought they were just completely wonderful. And um, I just thought, God, wouldn't it be fun to do that? That really would. That would just be like my perfect job. And, um, and and lo and behold, later on in life, we end up we end up making stuff together, and and I end up making programs for your company, My Vision, and we've become pals, and uh, it's just been great. I mean, what what a joy! Yeah, yeah. actually, actually, uh, people may not know this, and Al may not know this, but we first met when you were in one of your first jobs, probably, James. You were yes. you were, you were working for a, a, Penguin. A PR, a PR squid. Uh, yeah, and this is just maybe 20 years ago, just about 20 years ago, and I'd written a book called In Search of England, That's right. which was a series of essays about English identity. Yeah. I mean, strangely relevant <laughs> now to us. <laughs> My goodness, indeed, yeah. the, indeed, I look back on it, and the last chapter was about a, a, a Caribbean... West Indian family and their English identity. And the very last line of the book is sitting in the, in the, the Barbudan club in Leicester with, um, with a West Indian guy saying, well, we always said we were English. And uh, that's about English identity. And I, I, I took it off the shelf the other day thinking, wow. But anyway, you and I travelled around England uh, oh, talking about that to, book. That was and our we had first... Great, and we had great conversations, didn't we? I remember talking about sort of Ibn Khaldun and, and um, ideas about that and ideas about Charlemagne um, and, and, just, and just talking history. It was just... 
God, it was yeah. fantastic. I yeah. love H- I love that little book tour we did. Yeah, and H. V. Morton we talked H. V. about. H. V. Morton and the, with, and the wood bolt the, ton of Buckleberry uh, Common. With, with his, with his, he said after the First World War, he'd been in a hospital in in the British Army in Palestine, I think, and he'd met, yes. in 1918, and he made himself this promise that if he survived, if he didn't die out there in in what was then Palestine, he he would, when he got back, do a journey round England to try and understand what England was, and he, of course he sets out in a, I can't remember when it was now. You, 1927 or something like that he sets out to do that journey and produce that book um in search of england which was the title i nicked yes the book that we did <laughs> but yeah. but mike you've just just okay al you'll you'll appreciate this because mike was invited to lunch by phil marshall montgomery at the house of lords <laughs> mike you've got to tell no. this story it's just it no. I, I can't even well, begin to tell you how many times i've recounted it on your behalf but okay it's okay absolutely well, fantastic from, well from you start to, to finish okay you have to you have to um, uh, think yourself back to me as the manchester school kid who was mad about the norman conquest the Anglo-Saxons, as apparently we're not supposed to call them now, but pre-conquest England. And of course, I was one of those who thought that uh, the Normans were, you know, nasty, short haircuts and pointy little boots and fascistic destruction of our <laughs> ancient culture and all this stuff, you see. So the Battle of Hastings was a tragedy to me. And then the anniversary year, and I'm at school, and the anniversary year comes up, and, and Field Marshal Montgomery, of course, is a great war hero of... Uh, at that point, writes this big spread, like a lot of these experts at the time, the pundits who tri- you know, went over battlefields, Brian Horrocks and all these people. And Montgomery wrote this colour supplement for the Sunday Times, arguing essentially that the Norman Conquest had been a really good thing. And you can imagine that your younger r- listeners won't remember that clipped Montgomery voice, but, you know, damn good thing, but Norman's brought, brought European discipline and, you know, all that sort of stuff to the, to the um, uh, you know, to the benighted, long-haired, boozy, you know, there's a kind of Victorian myth that the Anglo-Saxons just kind of got pissed and sort of, you know, had created nothing, you know, and that Norman's, Norman's brought European civilization, And I was so furious. I was in our... Cuthbert Seaton's history class in, in Manchester and I wrote this letter from, I kept screwing up pieces of paper thinking, how am I going to do this? And eventually I wrote the letter from King Harold as if he was like in some Elysium saying, it's absurd to think your distinguished correspondent obviously had the faintest idea what really happened. This is what really happened. This is who we were. And, and the Sunday Times published this as a letter from King Harold, you know. And, and I was covered in mud on the football field when the head boy came out and said the high master wants to see you and I thought come what's going and I went in and the high master who was a rather you know cold fish actually held up with his thumb and his forefinger this letter going what's this wood (laughs) and there was a letter from Montgomery saying I, I gather that in another incarnation, King Harold Godwinson is a certain Michael Wood of Manchester Grammar School. <laughs> I shouldn't imitate his voice, should I? But I hope you people don't mind me doing that. And um, anyway, he then summoned me to debate this in the House of Lords with him, you know, to have lunch and to talk about it. And I, 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 I you know, and you're kind of gobsmacked, aren't you? Because you think, well... And so I, did, I went down and, and had lunch in the House of Lords dining room. 
And the great moment in all this was when Clement Attlee came over and sat with us. Can you seriously <laughs> imagine this? Incredible. And, and, and he said, uh, so what are you doing here then? And I said, well, I wrote this thing about the Norman Conquest and, you know, whether it was a good or a bad thing and whether, you know, had we really been cultured and civilised people before 1066? Hard to imagine people debated that then, isn't it? And Attlee leaned back and went, ah, oh, yes, the Norman yoke, that old chestnut. And of course, in <laughs> Labour politics and socialist politics, going right back to the levellers and the diggers in the 17th century, the English radical tradition believed that the, before the Norman conquest, we'd had a law-based society in which the king was answerable to the laws and that we'd had certain freedoms that were lost by the Norman conquest and afterwards, and that we never got back. And that the, <laughs> and that the levelers and the diggers and the radicals in the 17th century believed that the king and his minister were naught but the conqueror's generals reincarnate, you know, and, 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 and all this. And this was a long strand in the English radical tradition. So I literally uh, sat there with Clement Attlee saying, that old chestnut. <laughs> and I remember telling this story to the great Peter Hennessy, who's one of our greatest modern historians. And he said, he said Christ, you got more words out of Clement Attlee than anybody else did. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Mike, what did you make of, 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 of the great Montgomery when you finally did well, see him? I mean, well, was, he, was he nice to you? He was very nice to me, yeah, he was very sweet. He struck me as a rather lonely man. Do you remember he had the kind of caravan down at the bottom of his garden in Hampshire? With yeah. the, uh, and, and, and afterwards, he... Uh, it was very interesting, yeah. He was very, very bitter about the... Because you've got to think, this is the 1966, and, and Europe was still divided. And Montgomery felt very, very bitter about the division of Europe. And he poured it all out to this schoolboy, you know, um, that we should have gone straight on to Berlin yeah. uh, and, and so yeah. on. And the, the, the Americans had screwed him up. In, in, he'd pushed for that. And he was very, very upset about all that. And it, it, it was still a real wound to him. And he kept saying, have you read my book on leadership? And, sort of and I'd go, no, you know. And about a week or two, a, a, a week or two later, uh, the postman came staggering up our little path in Manchester, suburban Manchester with a box full of his books, all, wow. all signed, saying, um, uh, you know, hope, 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 hope that this will kind of, I don't know whether he said improve your study of history or, or it'll further it, but, um, you know, no, very... It was there was a curious sweetness about it. This very, this old man and this young kid, you know. Um, but of course, But of course, I never changed my views on the <laughs> conquest. I'm sure that Ladybird books uh, play more. These early memories of history mm. can be almost almost have the power of a myth, and you never lose that well, sense of you know that that's, that's what really happened. What the debate is about at the moment, right now, about history is is the casting myths that we've all taken on board and the collision of those myths. I mean, I had a book. I had a book that I was given by my godmother when I must have been three or four by R. J. Unstead called "Looking at History," mm. which was which was pictures <laughs> and stuff. So I've got my set image of of Norman Norman Fields, you know, with with the with the, with the rose and the the inclines and the, uh, and and how villages 
were this far apart from each other and how feudalism worked and where the salt was and all these set ideas. And, and of course, this sort of idea that Anglo-Saxons were cheerful hobbits who were then <laughs> in, enslaved by ghastly, yeah, yeah. you know, because that, 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 that's, such, that's such an interesting and compelling way of looking at it, isn't it? That, that, of course people want to believe that. It's, it's totally, it's an well, irresistible it, notion. It's, isn't it's it? Errol Flynn in Robin Hood, Nothing. isn't it? it? It's injustice I hate, yeah. not Normans. Not the not the Normans, and 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 uh, yeah, it's, it's madness, isn't it? And you and of course uh, in 1966, um, well, great works have had been written on Anglo-Saxon England already. You know, Stenton's yeah. Anglo-Saxon England had been published in November 1943, right in the middle of, wow. and it, it shows. It what was shows it, 1943. That. I didn't realize. 43. That. You know, wow. he did a new new editions. But since then, of course, the whole subject of pre-conquest England, and it's 500 years we're talking about here, it's incredibly formative time. And of course, we now know that the development of the English state from the early 10th century, you know, that these were far-sighted rulers who had, you know, were able to enact really far-reaching administrative reforms, uh, swinging kind of powers. Um, uh, they they restructured the land almost with uh, mm. this network of uh, fortifications and towns and, uh, uh, you know, a militarised society for... Fifty years probably till they loosened these things up in the in the in the nine thirties. So um, it's a completely different world of administrative expertise. You know, they had the most advanced coinage system in Europe that they could recall every five or six years by the nine seventies and recoin, taking into account. Altering the silver content to take into account inflation, wow. you know, virtually. I mean, they. But also, we also this, know that, that culturally they're so rich, aren't, aren't they? They're, they're so rich culturally. I mean, the the Normans take over a much older and more sophisticated civilization. That's what nobody understood, even in 1966. You know, and uh, it was the, probably the richest country in Europe. It got great Latin culture, but re- remarkably a great vernacular culture. And when I, when you look at our legacy, if if you want to be, I don't want to sound jingoistic, but if you want to look at the legacy of the English in the world, you know, the language, the literature and the structures, the ideas about government and parliamentary systems, you know, their roots are in the old English period. Mm. And, and uh, uh, nobody could read what Anglo-Saxon poetry, old English, let me call it old English, old English poetry yeah. survives uh, without connecting it with the vernacular tradition that runs right through Chaucer to Shakespeare and whatever, you know, yeah. uh, the, the mood of it. Even this sense of humour. I was just writing something about a um, great 7th century um, uh, teacher, uh, Hadrian of Canterbury, who, interestingly enough, Bede says was an African. Uh, you know, Hadrian and Theodore had come to revitalise the culture in the 660s, and Hadrian had become abbot in Canterbury. And he was an African, um, fluent in Greek and Latin, and, and, uh, and brings many African writers in, uh, to Britain at that time. He, I've argued in the thing I'm bringing out that he's the most important black Briton. And, and, but one of the things he brings in is the tradition of riddles. And um, uh, there was a great North African writer called Symposius, 
and and uh, Hadrian brings this, and it really takes off among the, the English pupils in Canterbury. They love it, and everybody after starts trying riddles, and they do them in Latin, and they do them in Old English, and you can't help when you read these riddles, and some of them are, you know, about the natural world, and about this and that, and some of them are really filthy, you know, really filthy. <laughs> you can't help but think of the, you know, the, 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 the Donald McGill postcards of, uh, and, and the, the whole tradition of riddling in English culture that it's earthy and it's naughty and it's, uh, you know, uh, I'm sorry I'll read that again and I'm sorry I haven't yeah. got a clue. That, yeah. that, that it runs right through English culture. Shakespeare makes all these p- terrible jokes that all the time, you know. Uh, you remember the doctor in, is it Merry Wives? You know, he's French, and so Shakespeare puns on his accents. Okay, you will make the first, he will make the second, I will make the third. <laughs> and and Sha- Sha- <laughs> this is English humour that runs right through, and it's there. So you can't help but look back at the Anglo-Saxon period and see those kind of roots. Even though the last thing I would say about it when I try to reclaim England is, that of course, England in the 10th century was, um, uh, you know, there were Danish speakers, Norwegian speakers, Welsh, uh, Cornish, different dialects of Anglian, different dialects of Saxon, Kentish. Uh, it was an incredibly multicultural society for mm. its time. I'm not talking about yeah. colour, but I'm talking about you know, probably 10 different major languages. So that polity that grew up, um, a great writer of the late 10th century says, the thing you have to understand about the kingdom of the English is that it's a land of many different cultures, languages and customs. And yes, uh, yes. I think that's a very interesting model, isn't it? But I think anyone who's been to Birmingham, Norwich, Plymouth, I mean, the, 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 one of the things that's notable about this country is we do have, you know, Newcastle, that the... the, the Different regional identities are very, very powerful. Aren't very they? powerful. And, may, and is that the is that the legacy of that, or is it or is it a continuation of that accommodation? It's a continuation that runs right through our history. You know, we, we're yeah. forever doing that. I was not long ago. I was, it comes back, funnily enough, to our in search of England journey. J. B. Priestley. I don't. You know, he mm. wrote a wonderful book on England, and yep. he was the great voice in the Second World War. Of course, his radio programs were. Had, they are absolutely like, fantastic. Uh, very you important. Know, unbelievable. Yeah. He was the voice of the the people with that lovely Yorkshire accent, and he wrote this book about England, <clears> travelling <throat> around England during the Depression, and the and the sense of the different regional characteristics is so brilliant. You know, I mean. In my neck of the woods is Manchester, of course, and we Mancunians and South Lancashire people believe that, of course, all, most of the great comedians in British, in modern British history, <laughs> come from South Lancashire. Everybody knows, everybody knows this, you know, <laughs> from Peter Kay to Arthur Askey to you, you name it. Uh, the, 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 Les Dawson, the, it, it's 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 obvious, you know, to to us Lancastrians. And and I was reading J. B. Priestley for a little speech I was doing in Manchester just before the lockdown, and, and he arrives in Manchester and he goes to the Midland Hotel, and it's kind of gloomy and polluted, pouring rain and all that. And he said, he said, why is it that the moment you arrive in Manchester, that every single person you, you meet seems to believe that they could be a music hall comedian? <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. Oh, yeah, fantastic. <laughs> but but when, when, when you, I mean, you know, here we are do, doing a thing that um, you can do with history, which is our concerns right now are for our, our modern concerns, and, and this week in particular, are, 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 are swirling around questions of race and history. And one of the things that you do is you write a, 
whenever you write history, you're writing about now, in essence, mm. aren't you? Mm. You're looking, you're looking for the things you're interested now in back then, <clears throat> and that 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 when we when we've had this debate this week, I mean about history, and we mustn't re the idea that that pulling down a statue is is somehow rewriting history, when maybe the statue was engaged in rewriting history itself, and anyway, we. Anyone with a passing acquaintance with the history industry knows that what you've got to do when you put out a book, if you're writing a popular history book, it's got to have sensational new revelations or be a completely fresh take or will make you think again that the, the rewriting, you know, that the, the rewriting is the is the. The, the engine of history, the inquiry, and well, all I, I remember, I remember saying, mentioning to Anthony Beaver, saying, 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 saying to him, well, you know, every history of the Second World War is is a is also a product of the age in which that history is being written, um, inevitably. Yeah. And I remember Anthony taking great exception to this, but I still, I still think that's true. I mean, you know, if you're, if you're writing a book true. about the Second World War in the 1960s, it's going to be different from what it is now, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. and that applies to all I history, mean, of course. Uh, to all history, I mean, if I could put an analogy to you, you think about, I think, the process by which nations develop their history. Um, I'm not talking about totalitarian nations who re- rewrite history right, right off, you know. But if you look at yeah. individual lives of people and the way we see our lives and the way you look back at how you were when you were 20, how you were when you were 40, um, and you... Even as a person, you select different things from that past to suit who, to fit with who you are now. You draw different things uh, from the past, things that perhaps didn't seem important when you were 25. Now, suddenly, you think, actually, that really was important. So even your view of yourself as a person changes over, over time. And you not exactly rewrite, but you, re, you rethink who you are. Mm. And you rethink the importance of events in your past, depending on where you've got to. And that's what nations do. And therefore, it's not, it's not that it just happens. You have to do it. It's, it's impossible not to. And if you don't do it, <clears throat> and you look at the American Black Lives Matter, you know, the, the truth is that America, the American Republic was founded on slavery and that the Civil War... Um, was fought over slavery, but the Reconstruction really um, set in place, in the South especially, but everywhere really, an apartheid state that lasted until the Mm. 1960s, Jim Crow laws till 1965, Uh, horrendous things were done. The the police um, services were organised in a way to um, contain uh, black people, the mass incarceration was used as a means of containing black people. I mean, there, were li- they, there, were lynch- there was a lynch. In, there was a lynch in Florida, wasn't there, where twenty thousand people turned up in nineteen thirty-four. Yeah, yeah. Twenty thousand I mean, people came to watch. I mean, these killings happened in the nineteen fifties and into the sixties. You know, so um, when I talk about rewriting history and and reconsidering history and developing a new history. There's a classic case where, although there's a lot of great American writers, of course, have written about it, but the mainstream history has not moved with the times. And, of course, the great issue, which I know you guys have talked about a lot um, already on, on, on shows you've done, is how far have we in Britain moved with the times? How far have we understood 
where we are in history. How far have we looked back at who we were when we were a bit younger? 1920s, 1940s, we look back all the time. I mean, I know you guys love the 1940s and don't get me wrong. <laughs> I mean, you know, my Uncle Bill was Dunkirk D-Day Berlin. My dad was at Had Hasler Naval, Naval Hospital in the operating theatres on D-Day. My mum was blitzed. In my, you know, all of them went through this. We grew up with it. But that, yeah. that story dominates the... And, and, and it's been played a really big role, I think, in the whole Brexit debate. And, and uh, so how far have we moved on our history to think about who we are now? And, and that's what everybody's really talking about this week, aren't they? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how you, how you, how you face the things... I mean, if it, to, to extend your analogy, how you face how you behaved that time that you've maybe decided to forget about you know the, the 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 that argument you had with a friend or or the what you, you you all that stuff and you, and of course after all again with you you tend to remember the good times don't you and uh, often uh, uh suppress the bad times i mean it's a, it's a, it's a sort of has a psychological um component as much as anything else doesn't it if you if you're if you're on the couch you, you talk about your childhood don't you and you have to face up to it and all that sort of thing and it's and it's a it occupies us if if history is if history is a sort of permanent um uh, internal national internal monologue or or, or a, a processing of an idea of a people's consciousness then like you say if you leave things out are you going to are you going to draw the right conclusions about now? Um, we need to take a break, um, Michael, because we we split these in two so our listeners can um, have do whatever it is they do during the break. Um, so we'll be back in a second, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Chalk. We're talking to Michael Wood. Um, and what we've done in the first part was wrestle the subject of history, thorny subject of history, to the ground and defeat it. I think we, we can agree on that. <laughs> what we haven't done at all is talk about China. Nobody defeats history. Which is what we history. were going to do. Right, yes. Nobody so, yes. defeats history. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you have done this, this, this monumental work on the story. I mean, you did the story of India a, a, a while back, and, and a few years ago you did the story of China, which was a, an amazing series for the BBC. Um, and you've just finished writing your book, haven't you, Mike? I have. Um, you know, I, I, China's been a, a very, very long in, interest of mine. In fact, the summer that I got involved with Montgomery, I, I was also buying Tang Dynasty poetry uh, uh, for the first wow. time and entering, a, wow. suddenly discovering a world that I never even dreamed existed. You know, we all make those discoveries in life, don't you? You know, you, you open a book and you go, what? And that's what happened to me then. And I shared with a, a sinologist in Oxford when I was a postgraduate. And I first travelled to China in the early 80s. And it's, in, it's just the most incredibly interesting civilization and the most amazing history that I think of any country, really. It's so staggeringly creative, uh, dramatic, uh, humane in its ways, even despite all the violence and the tragedies and everything else. And I, 
I, I thought about writing a book and then I realised I'm not a sinologist and it's, even though I'd had a lifetime's interest, it's, a, it's too big a job. And I wrote a, two or three chapters of it back in five years ago. And then after the series went out, friends said, you know, you should think about this because there's no real a kind of book on China that accesses its history in a, an approachable way, you know. And I, so the thing that I've been working on ever since, really, has been a, an attempt to look at it, um, <clears throat> not just the great narrative of the dynasties and the rulers, but these deep cores that go right down to the village level. I mean, not long ago, we did a series uh, set in an English village, which had just been repeated on the BBC, the story of England, about a place called Kibworth in Leicestershire, and where we took one village through the whole of British history um, and uh, with the help of the community and the people and all that. And I applied some of that to China as well, you know, mm. going down to village level and, and, of course, all the latest discoveries. I mean, been amazing archaeological discoveries. You think of the Terracotta Army. I mean, that's quite yeah. a long time ago now. I mean, there's stuff which isn't even published yet, you know, or preliminary publications in the last couple of years, you know, uh, staggering things coming out. So that's the book that I've written. And, of course, all, all... And it goes right back into the past, but right up to the present as well. And, of course, in studying recent history, I mean, from you guys, especially interested in the world wars, um, it's really interesting to look at China from the point of view our fourth ally yes, in the they, Second World well, War. You know? Well, this is the, this is the thing, is, is it's never in the picture. What, what's going on in China is never, ever in, the, in a... You know, it, it, a conventionally told... Uh, uh, British um, view of the war. May you may end up talking about the Eastern Front, about the Soviet Union's involvement. You may remember the Forgotten Army in Burma, but certainly what's happening in China isn't on anyone's radar at all. If if people know about it, they know about Stillwell and the Hump, but that's about they get over the hump and then they forget part. They don't. No, that's they, right. They don't know what's happening beyond the hump. Yeah, no, it's an amazing story, isn't it? Well, I mean, you know, they they were neutral in the First World War. Uh, but um, if, in the end, agreed to help with personnel. And it's easy to forget until you look at the movie footage and the pictures that there were 40,000 Chinese uh, working, uh, helping the British on the Somme. And there's a big military cemetery near the mouth of the Somme with Confucian gravestones, you know, and wonderful footage of the Chinese um, doing their dragon festivals and their dancing yeah. in the First World War. And, and, of course and they were responsible for a lot of the clear-up afterwards, weren't they? Yeah. And they thought, by helping us like that, <clears throat> that they would... Uh, we would be on their side after the First World War. But the staggering thing was, the first great betrayal of China in the 20th century was that when the, the Treaty of Versailles took place, the German colonies in China weren't given back to China. They were given to Japan. And, and the fury in China, which led to the great movement of May 1919, was they couldn't believe that we could have done that, you know. But nonetheless, uh, they were the fourth ally in the Second World War. And as yep. you say, Al, that, you, know, we, we, you know, we all talk about D-Day, don't we? And the, but you correct me if I'm wrong, but what was it, a million German troops in France and six million on the Russian front? Some kind of proportion like that. Uh, yep. it, uh, the Japanese war effort in China with the occupation of... You know, that war was absolutely crucial to the winning of the war 
in the um, in the east. Absolutely. Would, would it, but Mike, and, just and, just, uh, to, just to rewind a little bit. I mean, what what's going on with China post nineteen nineteen and in the nineteen twenties? Because the emperor gets it's, it's the last emperor, isn't it? And uh, the last emperor was yeah. The empire ended in nineteen eleven, stroke January twelve, and a republic. Uh, and why is that? And what, and how does that come about? The empire had been staggering since the the Opium Wars, to be honest. You know, the British had defeated them in the first Opium War, the second Opium War, and then gradually it lost its... This happens to empires in history, doesn't it? Rome, Persia, you name it. It gradually lost its, um, its... Yeah, Britain. It gradually lost its sense of... identity its sense of purpose and then cataclysmic series of um, uh, risings and revolutions started to happen and the biggest of which was called the Taiping rebellion in the 1850s and 60s that's been called the the worst war of the 19th century wow more people killed than the Napoleonic wars or the American Civil War or the Franco-Prussian wars and all that uh, you know, 20 million dead, wow. 16 years, wow. horrendous, God. horrendous destructions. And uh, they survived, but battered. And then a lot of Chinese at that point, uh, intellectuals and others, uh, even though their intellectual life had been gutted by the destruction of... You imagine kind of the Sorbonne and Oxford and Cambridge and all these places having been destroyed in the Napoleonic Wars and their libraries destroyed. Mm. That's what happened in the Yangtze mm. Delta. Uh, but the intellectuals uh, of the time said, we've got to modernise. And the big argument, do we modernise by drawing on the Chinese tradition? Do we go, do we Im- imitate the West, Western techno- adopt Western technology and all that? And the new, cult- the new uh, movements at that time s- stressed that we really have to learn from the West, we have to industrialise, we have to adopt Western Custom, and it went in the Republic after the fall of the Empire, right down to, you know, the old culture is just a weight round our necks. It's right. cannibalised us. <clears throat> we should, we should even uh, shake hands and not curtail. You know, we should, yeah. we should wear suits, not Chinese clothes, and all that. So the em- Empire had gradually unravelled uh, in, in the late nineteenth century. The modernisation movement, which would have led to a constitutional monarchy probably, and saved a lot of these catastrophes, was blocked by the um, Dowager Empress and, and her acolytes. And then the Boxer Rebellion happened. Right. The Allied armies came in of eight different countries, including the Americans and the Brits, the siege of Beijing, um, the, the defeat uh, and a catastrophic indemnity imposed, the equivalent of 60 or 70 billion today. Yep. Um, and and from, th- from then on, the, the, the writing was on the wall, you know, from 1901, and the movements for change grew and grew, you know, uh, all kinds of movements, socialist, uh, Marxist movements, translation of the Communist Manifesto from English was mm-hmm. done at that time, feminist movements, a feminist, great, great feminist manifesto published in 1907. We don't know about any of this, do we? No. no. You know, I mean, one of those brilliant works of feminism. Um, and one of the great feminists was executed in the town square of her town in Shaoxing by, by the government as people fought for change. And the change gradually happened with the revolution in 1911. And um, 
uh, Sun Yat-sen, who'd been in exile abroad, Hawaiian, but, uh, you know, um, brought up in Hawaii, interestingly enough, English speaker, they, they instituted the Republic. But the Republic never commanded full allegiance and warlords in different parts of the country um, uh, fought over the, the authority of the Republic uh, in the 1920s. Communist Party founded in 1921 and the communists then start to form their own uh, centres of power in the south and then all-out war between the Republican government, the nationalists and the communists. And so, uh, But the catalyst for the massive change in the revolution was the Japanese invasion. Yeah. You know, yeah. 1936, 37, um, Mao said... So, wait, so, wait, so, so Mao has emerged by this stage, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he. Uh, the civil war uh, sort of erupting, isn't it, between the nationalists? And yeah, the... Mao had seen Mao had seen firsthand in nineteen ten down in his native Changsha arising against the government uh, and the and the punishment of the rebels, the public execution, and all that. And he he told American journalist Edgar Snow about this in in the thirties, and it's a very interesting narrative. And he'd been a librarian in Beijing, and he'd he'd read widely. But he's a revolutionary nationalist, really. He's not. A, they didn't know very much about Marxism or communism or the theory of it or anything. You know, nothing was translated into Chinese apart from the manifesto itself. Um, but they are when the nationalists turn on them. And, and and murder thousands and thousands of communists, including Mao's wife and sister, and the the communists break out in the thirties on the long march up to the uh, to the north. That's that's the moment when that the split happens. But the Japanese invasion is the catalyst because yeah. the nationalist government is has to deploy its forces to fight the Japanese. So its main weight is against them. <clears throat> the communists are able to s consolidate their power in Yan'an and then appear as a on the scene as a liberation movement with a lot of goodwill at that point for their land policies and all this sort of stuff, mm -hmm. you know. And yeah. and uh, but once the Japanese are defeated, civil war happens between the nationalists and the communists, and the communists roll them up really in enormous battles on the Huai River. And by by nineteen forty eight to nine, it's it, it's over. Although, so forty five to forty eight is a, uh, is another three years of terrible civil war, origin. civil war, and and you know, so it's easy to you know. You've got to realise the Second World War for China really starts in thirty-seven, and and it and it, um, and it lasts until pretty much until forty-nine, and yeah. um, uh, I mean there was an interesting thing recently talking about Clement Attlee, funnily enough, where a, a letter from Mao to Chairman to to Clement Attlee in nineteen thirty-seven was sold by the Attlee family, went for six hundred and five thousand, I think, and this is a really? typewritten letter. In 1937, I think, November 37, so Japanese are devastating coastal China and are occupying coastal China and Shanghai and all that. Uh, the nationalists are fighting against them. The communists are up in Yan'an. Uh, and, and Mao writes a letter to Attlee, prompted by a New Zealand journalist who knew Attlee, who'd gone to, to see Mao, um, asking for the Labour Party's support and the support of all socialists and all fighters against fascism in this 
desperate situation in which the Chinese faced, you know. Yeah, and you, yeah. you, you, you read, you look at that letter, we got Mao's signature on it, but typed in English by the New, York, New Zealand journalists. Amazing. And, uh, and you realise the world looked differently in 1937 from what it looked in the 1950s, yeah, yeah. you know. And the, yeah. the catastrophic um, uh, mistakes of the Communist Party from from the 50s onwards, you know. Mm. Um, there was a, there's a great um, comment by one of Mao's, people who knew Mao very well, talking about Mao, and he said if, if, he'd, if he'd died in 1956, he would be an immortal. Yeah. If he'd died in 1966, he would, you, you might still have described him as a, as a great man for all his flaws. But he died in 1976. Alas, what can one say? <laughs> amazing that's amazing but how how is, how is china with its history now you know it, it's as it's sort of emerging as as a kind of sort of you know really the most even it's, it's sort of starting to challenge america and president she is or what's his state secretary she we should call him uh, is is sort of consolidating his power even more i mean what what's the what's china's relation with history today well, of course, the relation with history is a really interesting question. And like all communist governments and all totalitarian governments, China, as soon as um, Communist Party was in charge in the 50s, they, they rewrote history to suit a Marxist interpretation of history. You know? yeah, yeah. And, um, uh, and essentially, they still uh, control history in that way. Uh, and they... You know, they really object, for example, one or two American scholars like Peter Perdue have published books recently about the Chinese um, move west, you know, Xinjiang, for example. You've got the whole great debate at the moment, these awful things that are happening with the Uyghurs. There's a giant area of western China which was occupied under the Tang dynasty back in the 7th century and then under the Han briefly, but was... It conquered by the Qing dynasty in the 18th century, uh, along with parts of Mongolia and Tibet, which was a protectorate of the Qing dynasty, which had always been an independent kingdom. And to give you an example of how they view history, um, it, it, they blocked American academics coming to do talks about their books about China going west and Xinjiang and all that, because all these places are viewed as an inviolable part of the motherland. So the interpretation of history is rigorously controlled. And um, President Xi, in fact, he's, you'd say that if there are three big planks of the present government, um, growth must continue uh, to... Um, secure the allegiance of this giant middle class on which their support mm. rests you know so uh, growth must continue um, the the monopoly of power by the communist party must continue and be reinforced which it is being by ai of course and thirdly the emphasis is on the chinese way 
which is not the Western way. It's not the way of Western liberal democracy, law-based societies with freedom of speech and so on. And President Xi justifies this by an interpretation of history, which is um, that this has always been the Chinese way, that you, you, know, you have 1.4 billion people now, you have four, more than 400 million in the Qing dynasty. It's not possible to rule this vast country with its vast population in the same way that um, liberal democracies control themselves. You know, Deng Xiaoping famously said to Jimmy Carter in, back in 79, you know, uh, uh, when he talked about, <laughs> when Carter went, made some comment about, oh, God, American politics. And <laughs> Deng Xiaoping said to him, you should try ruling China. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, 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 and, and Deng Xiaoping said, the thing is that, um, uh, you know, the system of one vote, one man, <clears throat> multi-parties would lead to total chaos in our country. Now, um, uh, that's not necessarily true at all, but that's the way... That Xi Jinping right. views it. Yeah. So, so that their history then is seen as a um, an indicator of the future path in politics. But it's also based on she is a great reader of history. Apparently, avidly read Peter Frankopan's Silk Roads book, for example. Wow! And wow. and and she uh, believes that um, uh, you know we need to re-push the greatness of Chinese civilization. You know, Mao was for all for getting rid of old ideas, old traditions, old ways. Uh, he, she is all for the greatness of Chinese history. I mean, we had a bizarre thing. We did that series, Story of China, as you know, on the BBC, and this was widely pirated in China. Uh, within 36 hours almost of every episode being transmitted, there were, each episode was up with a full Chinese subtitling on websites. And wow. we, we even got reviewed by the main, you know, People's Daily and Xinhua, even though it wasn't seen on terrestrial. And, of course, they rapidly cut the Tiananmen Square sequence out of it. And bizarrely, President Xi spoke at a conference about te television in China. And he, he said, oh, now, look, uh, talking about documentary, these British guys have done this series called The Story of China. And, um, and they did a very good job. And uh, you, should, <laughs> you should look at this. You should look at this series and learn from it because we need to tell the story of China better. And right. they're obsessed by they're obsessed by how do we tell it to the world? You know, um, they've got this thing about using foreigners. Of course, they've got things about you know, especially mm. they want to use the BBC. They want mm. their stuff up on the BBC. We just. Uh, we did a film last year about Deng Xiaoping's opening up and our co-producers in China were going, can you get it on the BBC? We'd just done a co-production on China's greatest poet, the Tang Dynasty poet, Du Fu, who lived in the age of Beowulf, you know. Mm. And, and CCTV actually were co-producers on that. And, but, and of course, drawn by the fact that the BBC, we're going to put it on... On the BBC as well, you see. But, so, but Mike, I can see what I, I mean. I can see if you're President Xi, I can I completely see why the story, your story of China, uh, would appeal to him, and why why um, Peter's um, Silk Rose would appeal. Because, and I can also see absolutely the benefit if you want to come put yourself forward as the sort of preeminent nation in the world. Your heritage myth, your your culture, your cultural background, that richness of history. You know, we were doing stuff when you weren't even kind of, you know, when you were still in kind of skins and loincloths. Uh, um, that, that's very, I mean, that's a good, 
heritage to have, isn't it? And and what you do so brilliantly in your programs is you frame your history program in the present, so that what you're you're walking around places in China, talking to people and saying, okay, this was this. You know, what do you think about it? And 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 so it gives it a sort of contemporaneous kind of feel to the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I like, I always love that sense. And you can make films in a different way, you know. I mean, I've really enjoyed, I've really enjoyed watching David Olashoga's House Through Time, which is just completely documents based, you know. Uh, Whereas, um, uh, and it it works great, you know. We've we've tried to do those filmic things, which you couldn't do in a series like House Through Time, uh, in the same way. But uh, you... The, the, the ordinary people and the living culture play their, their role in this. And what you're suggesting always implicitly is that there is a continuity between the living mm, culture and, exactly. the, and the past, even where in somewhere like China it might seem to have been wiped out by the, the, the communists. Of course, it hasn't, you know, and you scratch the surface and you, you know, there's an amazing scene in the story of China at the beginning where we're, we're 200 miles into the countryside south of the great industrial city of Zhengzhou, you know, in farming country with people who've never seen Westerners before. And a million people are at a festival for an ancient gods and goddesses, you know, farming people. And you'd have thought, I, when I first went in the early 80s, you'd have thought that that was completely gone. And it just comes back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the, I mean, in a way, with the, with the history of China, when do you even start? Yeah, because because <laughs> China's, China's USP, isn't it, is that it is, it is ancient. And, the, uh, and as you say, it was a civilization that was doing, uh, Jim said, that we was doing stuff when we were stood around in loincloths. Where do you even where do you even begin? Because because part of the sort of certainly uh, in manufacturing. I remember I went to the, the Bechstein factory once to talk to look at pianos when I was doing a program about Germany about German culture, and the and the they they'd been at some some uh, expo in in China and realised that they could double the size of their factory making Becksteins and still never meet demand in China for, for pianos from the middle class who want to buy a piano on the tick like they used to do in Germany in the 1820s. That you'd buy an upright and, and that's how Beckstein got started. And, and he was saying that the big problem, of course, is that, is that, that they have their unique way of making a soundboard and all the, all the Chinese piano companies were buying his pianos and literally pulling them to pieces to find out how to make them. And he was saying... Well, you know, what happened, in, that's what it used to be like in Germany in the 1820s. And there was no intellectual copyright. And then it developed to protect those industries. He said all the Chinese people he was dealing with were going, oh, you Europeans with your brand new copyright ideas from the last couple of hundred years. What a load of baloney. <laughs> that's not how we've ever done it in China for the last 4,000 years. So, so this idea of its ancientness is really, really a big part of their attitude to dealing with everything. And the West, the West operates in this sort of temporary uh, gadfly way, whereas China is sort of eternal, isn't it? Is, is the, yeah, I mean, what, what, you, what are, you have to, I think you also have to give them credit for having invented most things before us, you know. So, yes, well, and we well actually, of course. I mean, we actually, well, no, sent absolutely. In, we actually sent industrial spies to Zhang Dezhen to, to find out how they how they made the Ming porcelain in the 17th yeah. century, yeah. you know. Yeah. Silk, we smuggled out silkworms. We, yeah. you know, high-grade steel, the compass, the, the, the you know, you name it. Gunpowder. Gunpowder. Gun um, yeah. You know, the stone and rudder the kind of you know we kind of almost triumphed using Chinese inventions so yeah. I think 
I think um, uh, we're outraged now because of copyright things, and of course, Chinese uh, the Chinese don't acknowledge whole areas of Western law, which has been one of the big things that has been a problem in developing contract law with the Chinese. You know, initially yeah. in the eighties, opening up, a lot of companies found it impossible to deal with the Chinese because uh, the, the the they weren't worth the paper they were written on. I mean, that's yeah. kind of changing now, but yeah, no, I think everybody's probably the same in this sort of stuff. Um, they they take everything. <clears throat> I mean, I did, I did an interview at the big high-speed train workshops the year before last for this film that we did about 1978, 79, and, and yeah. uh, the chief engineer, who was a woman, said, uh, yeah, yes, you know, initially it was contracts with the Germans and everything, but we very rapidly... Um, worked out what they did and we adapted it and we built our own and uh, our aim is to be totally self China made in China 2025 that's what they're after yeah. and uh, um, we would do the same probably well of course of course but I think it's just it's it was the idea that the thing he was on the receiving end of this guy was the idea that China's old Europe's temporary yeah, uh, that we're we're going to come and go. The, the West will come and go, and China will remain, which I think is really really interesting. So, so where do you even? Be, when does China start? Whoa. You know, when you're, you know, when you're, <laughs> I was hoping you when, wouldn't when ask you're... that question now. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, the continuities are incredibly deep rooted because you've got a yep. civilization that grows out of prehistory, which is continuous yep. ever since. Ever since, you know. So you can look at the prehistoric clues, you know, the development of cultures more than 4,000 years ago. I mean, it develops later as a civilization than Egypt and Mesopotamia, of course, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, but but the, the development of the early dynasties from 2000 BC onwards, the continuities start to develop. And by the time you're looking at the first writing, which is, occurs in about 1200 BC... That the staggering thing is, the moment when the archaeologists found those first oracle bones, there they were, they could see the same signs. Not all of them, but they could see the same signs used to, to, to today. So the Chinese script, which is a really, really important um, aspect of the way the Chinese think, because it's a pictographic script, you know, is still used today and separates them from uh, you know all the western mm. countries that use the roman script and and so and, so uh, i mean what you're saying is is that someone in china today could understand the writing of someone writing in china in 1200 bc well you wouldn't be able to read the text of an oracle bone but you would recognize the symbols for the sun or for rain or for whatever right. they're the same the the root of the language is the same and many other things you would say still pertain in the culture, you know, right. the um, uh, ancestry, the, the, the importance yeah. of the ancestors and lineage is really, really important in those first do, uh, documents from right. the Bronze Age, you know. Um, certain patterns of behaviour, um, the, the, the primacy of uh, writing, learning, the monopoly mm. of writing and learning and stuff like that in, a, in, a, in, in the, the governing class, you know. And then you look at uh, the Confucian, um, you know, Confucius lived about 500 BC, let's say, and in his text, 
and those of his followers, you see a, a vision of life which is not based on theological belief or any kind of supernatural structure like that. It's essentially based on social, the collective over the individual, uh, on social cohesion, on the necessity for people to be benevolent, to act with virtue, to these are kind of codified and deeply written in the system. Now, as you well know, your brother Tom wrote a brilliant book recently called Dominion, which says that even though we're predominantly not religious societies anymore, although it's in the West, although they are in America, I suspect, um, we all still think like Christians. Well, the Chinese think like Chinese. And, and the idea of a, a, a mental universe structured by monotheism, and it's not necessarily even only the belief in one God, it's the belief in the whole structure of one truth, one, you know, but they don't think like that at all. And I suspect that despite the 70 years of communism, the, that those things, the predominance of the collective over the individual, uh, y you know, the, the necessity to rub along and the way we structure rubbing along in all sorts of important ways in the society, the attitude to uh, ancestry, to children, to, you know, there's many things in it that you, you, you read a 5th century BC text and you think the Chinese still, in essential way, think like that, you know. Um, so, I mean, I'm not an expert in these things, as you know, I'm not a sinologist, but I've spent a lot of time in China the last, especially the last seven years, um, yep. going back many years. And, and you just notice, you sit there with your film crew, who you love, love our Chinese film crew. Um, we, 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 you sit there over dinner talking about things and you think, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? There's no, they're not, they're not bound by any of the religious taboos and social taboos that we are in the West, even though morality was at the centre of their ancient civilization. you see. So it makes you think in a completely mm. different way, mm. really. Oh, Mike, it's been fantastic. Thank oh, you so yeah, much for thank that. Thank you so I, much. I, that's Absolutely fascinating. A very wide-ranging and uh, completely <laughs> compelling hour of chat. Honestly, I, I, I could we could do it all day, every day. Yep. But um, well, thank, thank you. That was brilliant. Thank, yes, and thanks for helping us kick off our um, uh, chalk series. It's been a total pleasure, and we can't wait to all meet up next year. Oh, I know, I know, I know. Oh, I know. Bring it on. Bring it on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you very much, Michael. I'll get my welly boots ready. <laughs> the, the annoying thing is the weather next week looks absolutely amazing or yeah, rather yeah. I should say this week looks amazing oh fantastic yeah, yeah. okay Mike all the best Cheerio, thank everyone. you see you soon well thank you all for listening to our chat with the wonderful Michael Wood uh, and I just want to remind you that tonight is uh, being shown the Chalk Valley History Show uh, on YouTube Premier at 7.30pm uh, and you can see this by going on to uh, the Chalk Valley History Festival uh, website www.cvhf.org uk that's cvhf.org.uk and tonight we've got uh, Sophie Roberts talking about the last lost pianos of Siberia um, contributions from Anita Anand um, and lots of living history a day in the trenches uh, and much much more so do tune in many thanks <laughs> <laughs>